0: Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talked with Eva Lubich, a graduate student in the economics department at UC Berkeley and at the Energy Institute at Haas. Eva recently released a fascinating working paper on the gap between household energy spending between white and black households. I'll ask her how big that gap is, whether it's changed over time, and what might be causing it. It's a fascinating conversation, one that includes not just energy, but also the history of discriminatory housing policies in the United States. Stay with us. Okay, Eva Lubitsch from the University of California at Berkeley and the Energy Institute at Haas, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Yeah, we're excited to have you. So um, we're going to talk about a really fascinating working paper that you uh, published recently in June. Um, But before we get into that paper, we always like to ask our guests how they got interested in working on energy and environmental issues. So how did you get into this field?
1: Yeah, um, I fell in love with snowboarding when I was in high school and so when I went to college the first thing I did was join the outdoor club and eventually also join an outdoor leadership training program and As a result, um, many of my formative experiences and relationships that I had in that period of my life were either built in the mountains or in some way connected to the outdoors. And so initially I was drawn to energy and environmental issues because I wanted to preserve those outdoor spaces that had been so meaningful to me and because I was worried about the snow melting and losing my favorite hobby. Um, But at the same time, I think it was the fall of my junior year the Divest Coal campaign was really ramping up on campus. And uh, I guess I should say Divest Coal was a grassroots movement of students organizing with 350.org that was calling on university administrations to divest their fossil fuel assets. And that campaign really drew my attention to the power of the fossil fuel industry and made me appreciate the importance of aligning financial incentives with societal goals. And so, I was a physics major i had initially thought that i would work on climate problems as an atmospheric physicist or something in the scientific space but between the grassroots activism of divest coal and a couple of really engaging environmental policy and economics classes that i took my senior year i decided to switch and try to approach the problem from an economics perspective instead
0: yeah that's really interesting and (laughs) your note about snowboarding just reminds me i think one of our most common responses to this question has something to do with the mountains. <laughs> uh, something about the mountains and the environment just sort of, you know, get people really inspired.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, the opportunity to spend time in the mountains, it's such a great opportunity for reflection and growth and can be very meditative. So that yeah. makes sense to me.
0: Yeah, great. Well, let's get in now to uh, to your recent working paper, which uh, we'll have a link to in the show notes. But in case people want to search for it online, the paper is called The Race Gap in Residential Energy Expenditures. It's a working paper from the Energy Institute at the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. And um, this is probably a really obvious question, but can you just help us understand um, why did you want to look at this issue and try to understand the differences in energy expenditures uh, across races?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, first of all, we know that there are differences across race in so many other outcomes from income and intergenerational mobility to air pollution exposure, and currently we're seeing it with impacts of COVID-19 as well. Um and I just hadn't seen any sort of like very broad systematic analyses of differences in energy expenditure. Um and I thought it was important to look at that um sort of like in itself, because at least some of energy use is non-discretionary. Um so you know, people need to heat their homes, keep on their lights. Um and so I thought it was really important to understand, you know, how baseline energy expenditures differ across race, if they do. Um But there's also an additional layer here, which is that residential energy use has become sort of a focal point of progressive climate policies, partially because of the joint promise of clean electricity generation and electrification, and partially, I think, because energy efficiency improvements are seen as low-hanging fruit for reducing excess energy consumption. So... You know, Biden's most recent climate plan reflects this. He uh, includes a transition to 100% clean electricity by 2035 and investment into the weatherization of 2 million homes. Um, and these kinds of transitions can be designed in ways that either mitigate or exacerbate existing inequalities. And you know I think that understanding what those inequalities are is a crucial first step to designing transitions well.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. And there's great research that's been done in the economics field about the sort of distributional effects of weatherization policies and other energy efficiency policies Yeah. Um, that we'll have to save for another podcast, but <laughs> um, but I'm glad you, you referenced them. Um, so one um, slightly technical question before we get into what some of your major findings are. For our research uh, listeners out there, I think it'd be useful for us, for them to understand what the data set Uh, is or was that you were using to try to understand uh, this topic. So can you give us a sense of what data you used, what time frame it covered, the parts of the country that it included, and any other important relevant data?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I primarily use data from the American Community Survey or the ACS. Uh, The ACS is an annual nationally representative survey of about 1% of the U.S. population, and respondents are asked a bunch of questions about a variety of different topics, which include basic demographics like age and race, socioeconomic characteristics like education and income, Um, and importantly for me, the ACS asks about energy expenditures. So, namely, they ask about annual expenditures on electricity, natural gas, and other home heating fuel. And so I use those three variables to construct a measure of annual residential energy expenditure costs, which is the sum of the three different fuel types. Um, And that's the main variable I use um, for my analysis. And in terms of, you know, other important sample restrictions and time periods, um, I restricted the sample to households that were either entirely white or entirely black because I sort of wanted you know, a very clear comparison um, across race. Um, I use households that live in one of the 50 states or in D.C., and my data spans 2010 to 2017. I think um, one thing that I should say that's maybe a little bit in the weeds, but I think is important to mention, is that I deflate all of my money variables, so basically income and energy costs, to account for inflation. And so all of my estimates are actually expressed in 2012 dollars um you know maybe in the next version of the paper i should switch that to 2020 values to be a little bit more intuitive to you know the economic conditions we find ourselves in currently but um yeah
0: great got it so if you say 100 today then that probably that's 2012 dollars mm-hmm. um and so 100 dollars in your paper is maybe something like 110 dollars in today's dollars exactly great so um When I was reading the paper, one of the really nice things uh, that I appreciated in it is that you sort of start off by telling us what the results look like if we just look at the raw data without controlling for factors like income or location where people live. Um, What do we see when we look at those raw data without controlling for any of the important variables?
1: In the raw data, we don't see a statistically significant difference in annual residential energy costs. Um, So I estimate that black families spend about $50 more a year than white families, but Mm -hmm. this is only 2% relative to the sample average of annual spending. And again, it's not statistically significant from zero. So basically, there's no meaningful
0: gap Right. And then, so the next step, right, we can start to get more interesting here. Uh, When you control for some of those other factors, um, how do the effects start to change?
1: Yeah. So as I start controlling for factors that we would expect to be correlated with energy consumption, the energy expenditure gap becomes both economically and statistically significant. So... In my preferred specification, I control for household income, uh, household size, and city of residence. And I estimate the residential energy expenditure gap separately for renters and for homeowners. And what I find is that in that specification, black renters spend $273 more a year than white renters, and black homeowners spend $408 a year more than white homeowners. This ends up being a gap of about 15% over annual average expenditures for both renters and homeowners, which I was actually a little bit surprised that it wasn't larger for renters. Um, but yeah, basically about 15% for both. Um, and then I also I break the results down by income. So I split the sample into 10 income deciles and estimate the gap for each decile. And I find that the gap is pretty stable in levels across incomes, except that it closes at the very top of the income distribution for both renters and for homeowners. And so uh, what that means is that in terms of energy burden, which is the share of income spent on energy expenditures, um, the energy burden gap is highest for low-income households, um, which we know already face sort of the highest energy burden at baseline. Great. That's
0: so interesting. And there's so much interesting meat on yeah. back there and we'll, we'll try to do that over the next you know 10 or 15 minutes one just clarification that I would make for our non-economist listeners uh, when you use the term preferred specification um, that just sort of refers to doing a variety of um, statistical models to try to estimate the effects. And then your preferred specification is the model that you think is kind of the most appropriate and accounts for the the right range of factors. Is that a decent definition?
1: Yes. Thank you for clarifying that.
0: <laughs> yeah, sure. thing. Um, so great. Let, let's dig a little deeper. Um, one of the uh, points that comes up often when you talk to people in the electricity industry and the issue of energy affordability is the notion that low cost natural gas along with low cost uh, lower cost renewables increasingly in recent years has helped uh, lower prices of home heating uh, and home electricity use across the country so when you look over time at some of these effects and how they change what do you see
1: Yeah. So when I look over time, I see that the residential energy gap looks like it's decreased by about $150 between 2010 and 2017. Although I should say that statistically, I can't reject that the gap has stayed constant. Um, But you know, it certainly looks like it's trending downwards. And you make a great point about the rise of cheap natural gas. Um, you know, in in this version of the paper, I don't do any causal inference, and I haven't looked at how the decrease in the gap varies across regions with more or less natural gas, but I think that it would be really interesting to know what share of the decline can be attributed to that shift in fuel, and I'll definitely plan to look at that in future versions of the paper. Um, in terms of, you know, examining how much the gap has declined and what has caused it to do so, I think another uh, really interesting direction is to try to understand how much was driven by investments undertaken under the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, which, you know, in 2009, uh, directed $5 billion towards energy efficiency improvements. Um, And, you know, that's right before my sample period. So I think both of those are really interesting to dig into more.
0: Yeah, interesting. Um, So one other kind of interesting note in the paper is, um, you know, you spend some time exploring what some of the reasons behind the energy gap might be, Uh, you know, why it is that black households are spending more uh, than white households on energy. Um, Can you give us um, a little bit of a sense of the historical issues that might be contributing to that big difference? Like, so what are some hypotheses that are out there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's so important to you know take these results in the context of history. So, um, one mechanism that I explore um, is you know differences in energy efficiency of the home, and given that energy efficiency depends on capital stock, which requires high upfront costs to invest in. Um, historical policies that excluded black people from home ownership or wealth accumulation or accessing credit could all have been important to contributing to these large differences so there um were explicit laws in the books that excluded Black Americans from ownership and wealth generation well into the 20th century. For example, in the 1930s, the homeowners loan corporation began the practice of redlining, which basically identified non-white neighborhoods as unworthy of credit for mortgages. And you know this not only led to disinvestment and persistent poverty in those neighborhoods, Um, which, you know, worsened educational opportunities and worsened job opportunities and intergenerational mobility. Um, But it also, it just made it hard for Black families to buy homes in those neighborhoods. But at the same time, they were also explicitly excluded from living in suburbs by deed covenants, which prohibited the sale of homes to Black families. And so together, you know, these, as well as other practices, prevented black Americans from owning homes, which is one of the main forms of wealth generation in the U.S. And this has had persistent effects. So, um, you know, today estimates suggest that the median black household's wealth is only 10% of the median white household's wealth. Um, So that's sort of like on the homeownership and wealth side. And then sort of at the same time, black households aren't able to make up for this gap with borrowing because even though the fair housing act banned racial discrimination and lending in 1968 there's evidence that credit continues to be more costly for black households so you know just to give one example um a paper by Bayer, ferrera and ross shows that even after conditioning on credit score and income black people continue to face higher cost loans and so um you know There's a disparity in wealth, and then there's a disparity in credit access. And then on top of that, um, although segregation is no longer legally enforceable or allowable, um, ongoing informal discrimination in housing markets continues to restrict housing choice sets for black households and drives up property taxes for the same home values. And so these are just a few of the ways in which systemic racism has led to lower wealth and lower levels of home ownership and simultaneously sort of like higher costs of home ownership and costs of credit. And I see all of these, especially when taken together, as potential barriers to living in higher quality or more energy efficient homes or to, you know, making the upfront high cost investments um, that are necessary to, you know, get energy efficient capital
0: yeah that's a great explanation, and it's you know such a troubling history and troubling present in in, in many ways. Um, but it's really important to think about and be aware of. Um, I think I first became aware of this issue in detail. Uh, from Tanahasi Coates's story in the Atlantic um, about five or six years ago, it's called "The Case for Reparations." Uh, that I think has been widely read by a lot of people. It's not scholarly work, but um, yeah. it's you know incredibly powerful piece. Um, lays out a lot of these historical issues.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That piece was also very formative for my thinking about race issues and how they connect to environmental justice and climate policy.
0: Yeah. So when we think about the scholarly community and researchers and what they have looked at in this field, um, when you look across the sort of energy justice literature, the environmental justice literature, how does how do your findings or, or your research approach, how do they connect uh, with that body of work?
1: Um, yeah, so I think my findings, you know, there's a broad set of evidence that black Americans bear a disproportionate burden of the current energy system. And my findings contribute to that set of evidence. And when I talk about, you know, the burden or the cost of the current energy system, I sort of have in mind two aspects. The first is the literal cost of buying energy. And that's the aspect that my paper speaks more to. And the second is the cost of pollution that results from the mining and burning of fossil fuels that we've been using to generate Energy. And a lot of the work in this space has focused on the latter of these, I think rightfully so, because exposure to pollution is incredibly costly in terms of health and in terms of productivity. And so there's been a lot of work on that disparity. So the environmental justice movement grew out of the civil rights movement, um, it goes back to the 60s and 70s. And there's been research quantifying. Uh, disproportionate exposure to pollution since at least 1983, when the Government Accountability Office published a report showing that Black people were much more likely to live near polluting point sources. And this descriptive fact, unfortunately, still holds true today. And as you mentioned, there's been a recent increase um, in work exploring underlying causes and consequences. And so, you know, I think two papers that I want to highlight that I see as really related are... Um, one is a paper by Peter Christensen and co-authors. Um, they use a correspondence study, which is a study in which you know they pretend to apply for apartments, and they vary. Um, the characteristics of their pretend applicants Um, and they show that disproportionate sorting of black families into neighborhoods um, that are near polluting point sources is at least in part due to ongoing discrimination that restricts housing choice sets. So basically they find that when they claim that an applicant is black, they get higher response rates in neighborhoods that are closer to polluting point sources. Um, And, you know, an, another great paper is, you just had a conversation recently with Katie Hausman and Sam Stolper about um, their work, which highlights how hidden information and uncertainty about the cost of pollution, even when it's constant across race groups, can lead to additional disparities in exposure. And so, yeah, I think, you know, there's a ton of great work in this space, but those are two papers that I was thinking about a lot um, when I was writing my paper. Um, You know, on the other side, on the like literal cost of buying energy, um, you know, that's the work that my paper contributes to more directly. Um, And there's been a lot of great recent work um, sort of like studying disparate energy burdens. So, for example, Tony Reams has a couple of papers that have come out in the past few years showing that energy burden or the share of income spent on energy expenditures is higher in high minority Neighborhoods, um, you know, and there was another paper um, that came out, like sort of looking across um, households in just the 2011 ACS. And so my contribution to that literature, I think, is uh, you know to look at differences conditional on income, and you know parse out the components of these differences that are driven by income versus race um, and to do that at the individual level in a national sort of like longer time sample.
0: Great. That makes a lot of sense. And yeah, there is so much interesting work in this space. And um, as you mentioned, we had Katie and Sam on the show, maybe six months ago or so. Um, And, uh, and Tony Reams is a, is a Michigan uh, professor uh, and a friend of mine who I've been meaning to invite on the show for a while now, and uh, we'll certainly get around to it sometime soon. Um, yeah. So what's next for you? Uh, you mentioned a couple potential avenues for furthering this line of research. Um, are you planning on continuing to look into this issue of racial disparities in energy, uh, or are you looking to expand and do related or even unrelated new work?
1: Um. The answer is yes to both. (laughs) Um, So uh, I'm definitely planning to dig into this project more. Um, You know, as we talked about, this current version is really descriptive, which I think is great and important. Um, But I would love to be able to say more about what has caused the gap and what's driven its decline in recent years. Um, And so I'm definitely going to dig into that in future versions. Um, And then I do also have a couple of other sort of like early to mid-stage projects that I'm working on. I guess, broadly speaking, I'm really interested in the relationships between inequality, capital and public goods investment, and energy use, and understanding what those relationships mean for optimal climate policy. And so, you know, I see this work as fitting under that umbrella. And I'm also asking a few different other questions related to sort of like built environment and energy use and investment into public goods and energy use to try to get at this topic from different angles. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah, well, that sounds great. I mean, so many, <laughs> there obviously are kind of an infinite number of interesting things to explore. And um, I'll you know, really look forward to, to seeing what you produce in the next you know couple of years and, and even further on these topics. Thanks. All right. Well, Eva uh, Lubich from University of California at Berkeley, thank you again so much for joining us. And let's close it out with the same question that we ask all of our guests, which is what's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack that you would recommend to our listeners. Um, and I'll start off with a book that I'm actually—it actually, it, it is literally on the top of my stack. I'm about halfway through it. Um, and it's really interesting. It's very much related to what we've been talking about. Um, it's a book called There's Something in the Water, mm. Environmental Racism in Indigenous and Black Communities. It's by a scholar named Ingrid RG Waldron uh who's based in canada and there's also a documentary of the same name that i found um featuring ellen page uh who's an excellent actress but but it's a documentary of uh, ellen page going around talking to people in some of these communities who are experiencing these negative impacts um so i'm reading the book and uh learning a lot from it and uh, we may invite uh, Dr. Waldron on the show to talk about it if we can get her. Um, but it's, you know, another illuminating example of historical injustice and the way that it's playing out in, um, in our society. So I'd recommend people check it out if they're interested in exploring more of this topic. Um, but how about you, Eva? What's on the top of your stack?
1: Um, Well, first of all, I'm definitely going to add that to the top of my stack as well. You know, I've been finding that my stack has been growing faster than I can keep up with it um, in recent months. Um, That's the nature of the stack. It
0: just grows. It never shrinks. Yeah.
1: Um, But, you know, maybe this is cheating, but I have a dual recommendation. So I just listened to the third season of Drilled, which is a podcast by Amy Westervelt. Um, and. She digs into the history of the oil industry's influence over energy and climate policy, and it is eye-opening and excellent. And it also inspired me to reread the book, Merchants of Doubt, which came out, I think, uh, in 2010. Um, it's a book by Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway. And they really you know, explore the links between the tobacco industry and the oil industry, and they lay out the ways in which science denial um, across both of those industries was constructed following the same strategies and sometimes constructed by even the same people. Um, And, you know, it was really, it has been really formative in how I've thought about climate policy in recent years. And. I think one of the things that was especially striking to me, um, especially as I'm thinking about it right now, is the repeated pattern of industry successfully framing attempts to protect the collective good as an affront to individual freedom and, in turn, American values. You know, We're seeing that conflict play out in real time now with the way that COVID's been handled. And so I just think it's an incredibly important dynamic to be aware of when trying to like think about or make policy that deals with externalities so yeah if you don't feel like you have enough to be mad about already um (laughs) merchants of doubt and drilled are both must listens and reads in my view
0: yes i have read merchants of doubt and i've listened to parts of Drilled, but not the whole thing and uh yeah definitely both really interesting uh provocative in some ways i think but um but you know useful perspectives for sure yeah Um, Great. So Eva Lubitsch, uh, once again, thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio and sharing your work was really fascinating, and uh, I learned a ton. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It was great.
0: You've been listening to Resources Radio. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of resources for the future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.